0: Prior to the 20th century, most philosophers did not, perhaps even could not, properly appreciate the reality or irreducibility of relations, or so many of us have been taught to believe. Indeed, according to a familiar story, full-fledged realism, or anti-reductionism, about relations didn't appear until the late 19th century, when it burst onto the philosophical scene almost wholly unprepared for. As David Armstrong writes, uh, and here I refer you to the first passage under A on the handout. Philosophy has been a long time coming to grips with the category of relations. It's not until the late nineteenth late nineteenth and twentieth century, with C. S. Peirce, William James, and Bertrand Russell that relations begin, no more than begin, to come into focus. Echoing these sentiments with a bit more caution, John Heil writes in his recent entry on relations in the Routledge Companion to Metaphysics Indeed, the history of philosophical discussion of relations divides conveniently into the period before and the period after the late 19th century. With important exceptions, relations were regarded with suspicion until philosophers working in logic and foundations of mathematics advanced reasons to doubt that we could provide anything like an adequate description of the world without employing a relational vocabulary. But what explains the late development of our contemporary perspective on relations? According to the familiar story, the influence of Aristotle is largely to blame here. Sometimes the relevant influence is said to be linguistic or semantic in nature. Due to Aristotle's emphasis on the subject-predicate form of propositions, philosophers prior to the 20th century lacked a clear understanding of the logical form of relational propositions, and hence were unable to think of relations as we do now, namely as beings or entities corresponding to polyadic predicates. This explanation is at least hinted at in the quotation from Hyle, but others make it much more explicit, and here I'm reading from the first passage under explanations. Obviously, says Francis Cornford, the author of the categories did not conceive of relations as subsisting between two things, as they are now symbolized by R standing between A and B in ARB but sometimes the relevant influence is said to be more metaphysical in nature. Due to Aristotle's emphasis on substances and accidents in ontology, philosophers prior to the 20th century tended to think of the world in terms of individuals and their monadic properties. And this explains why they did not, perhaps could not, understand relations as polyadic properties. Thus, as Kenneth Olson writes, explicitly extending the point to Aristotle's medieval followers, When Aristotle and the Scholastics talk about they mean relational properties. The things related are divided into subject and term, and the relation is held to inhere in the subject, as opposed to holding between subject and term, as Russell has taught us to view it. Of course, these linguistic and metaphysical explanations are not incompatible. On the contrary, Russell himself, to whom the familiar story owes its popularity, if not its origin, explicitly connects them. Traditional, that is Aristotelian logic, he says, since it holds that all propositions have the subject predicate form, is unable to admit the reality of relations. All relations it maintains must be reduced to the properties of the apparently related terms. In this paper, I aim to show that the familiar story about the development of relations is mistaken in almost every particular. My focus will be on those pre-20th century philosophers I know best, namely medieval philosophers living in the Latin West from roughly 400 to 1400 AD. Although these philosophers were deeply influenced by Aristotle's logic and ontology, I shall argue that, at least in their case, we can be confident that each of the following claims is true. And here I'm reading from B on the handout. First, Uh, Medieval Aristotelians have a clear understanding of polyadic predicates and standardly identify or pick out relations as what corresponds to these predicates. Second, they have a clear understanding of polyadic properties and some explicitly identify relations with such properties. And finally, most medieval Aristotelians accept realism about relations and many embrace a form of anti-reductionism as well. If I'm right about these claims, the familiar story is obviously in need of serious revision. I can't here undertake to provide the necessary revision and all its details, but I will gesture toward the end of the paper at the form I think it should take. My main goal, however, is to establish that Aristotle's influence, far from being an unfortunate impediment to the proper understanding of the nature and existence of relations, actually introduced a level of subtlety or sophistication that's sometimes missing from contemporary discussions. So section one is Relations and Polyadic Predicates. During the Middle Ages, all theorizing about relations begins with Aristotle's short treatise, The Categories. Part of the reason is historical. Due to circumstances surrounding the collapse of the Roman Empire, this turns out to be one of the few texts of ancient Greek philosophy available to philosophers in the Latin West prior to the 1100s, and the only one to contain a systematic philosophical treatment of relations. But part of the reason is also philosophical. Medievals find Aristotle's treatment of relations in the categories theoretically attractive and hence are persuaded to adopt a similar framework in their own thinking about the nature and existence of relations. Aristotle's treatment of relations in the categories has two main components. First, he identifies relations, or relatives, as he prefers to call them, as one of the ten categories of being. Or more precisely, he identifies them as one of the nine distinct categories of accident. And I've put a relevant passage from Categories 4 on the handout under C., so that's the first component. The second component is he singles out relations for detailed independent consideration, attempting to identify criteria by which they can be distinguished from members of the other categories. Um, in the next section of the paper, I'm going to explore what the medievals take to be the implications of Aristotle's identification of relations with accidents. So that first component. Here, however, I want to focus on their understanding of the criteria by which he thinks relations can be picked out. Aristotle's discussion of these criteria occur in Categories Chapter 7, and the discussion itself is organized around two definitions. The first definition, which the medievals associate with Plato, characterizes relations in terms of how they're spoken of. And this is the first item under D on the handout. And I notice there's a typo. Uh, We call the following sorts of things relatives. All those things said to be just what they are of or than something, or towards something in some other way, any way whatsoever. Thus, what is larger is said to be what it is than another. It's said to be larger than something. And a double is said to be just what it is of another. It's said to be double of something, and similarly with all other cases. As the medievals interpret this definition, it picks out relations in terms of the predicates by means of which they're signified. Medievals refer to these predicates as relative terms and understand them, roughly speaking, as terms whose true predication requires a comparison to something other than the subject of which they're predicated. As they see it, therefore, larger counts as a relative term because when we predicate it of something, and hence assert of something that it's larger, we necessarily do so in comparison to something else. We don't assert merely that Simeus is larger. We assert that he's larger than Socrates or Theatetus or the average man. Similar remarks apply to double, as well as to all other relative terms. And so generalizing, the point here just seems to be this. A term f is relative, just in case a predication of the form fx is more perspicuously represented as of the form xry. If a term is not relative, then the medievals say that it's absolute. The first or Platonic definition, therefore, characterizes relations as the items signified by relative terms. And, as I hope is obvious, relative terms are just what we would nowadays call polyadic or many-place predicates. The medievals think of the first or platonic definition as providing a useful guide to the members of the category of relations. Indeed, they think of it as providing a necessary condition for their identification. Even so, they think this definition is by itself insufficient to distinguish relations from other types of beings, and hence they ultimately reject it as too broad. In this respect, they take themselves to be following Aristotle himself, whom they think of as rejecting the first definition on the grounds that it includes certain substances, namely heads and hands. And here I'm reading from the so-called second definition. Uh, Aristotle says, if the first definition of relatives was adequately assigned, it's exceedingly difficult or impossible to reach the conclusion that no substance is a relative. But if, on the other hand, it was not adequately assigned, and relatives are rather defined as those things for which this is their very being, to be toward another in a certain way, then perhaps something may be said about the problem of heads and hands. On the standard medieval interpretation of this passage, Aristotle is here noting that relations can't be identified on the basis of purely linguistic or semantic criteria. For although all relations are signified by relative terms, not all relative terms signify relations. Thus, head and hand are relative terms, as is clear from the fact that predications of the form X is a head and X is a hand are more perspicuously represented as of the form X is a head of Y and X is a hand of Y. Even so, the medievals agree with Aristotle that these terms signify parts of substances rather than relations. On the basis of these and other such examples, therefore, they conclude that relations must be identified not merely with the being signified by relative terms, but rather with a proper subset. Of them. Of course, this still leaves us with the question of how genuine relations are to be identified, distinguished from the mere significata of relative terms. Here, medieval philosophers think that the second definition, which they take to be Aristotle's own, can be of some help. For as they interpret this definition, and in particular the bit of it I've italicized in the passage on the handout, uh, they take that. bit, ta, to be intended to highlight an important metaphysical or functional role that relations play. In addition to being signified by relative terms, genuine relations also serve to relate two or more things. Or to put that latter point in slightly different terms, relations are that in virtue of which two or more things are related. On this interpretation, Aristotle's definition, they think, provides a clear explanation for why heads and hands fail to qualify as genuine relations. Uh, for although they're signified by relative terms, they don't actually serve to relate anything. On the contrary, they're things standing in relations. They're relata rather than relations. This interpretation of Aristotle's preferred definition of relatives, as well as its relation to the first or Platonic definition, turns out to be important for medieval discussions about the precise nature and ontological status of relations. Indeed, in medieval philosophy, it becomes the basis for a common distinction between two kinds of relations, relations merely according to speech relations secundum dici, and relations according to being, or nature, relations secundum esse. And I've put a passage, uh, a well-known passage of Aquinas where he draws just this distinction on the handout, but I think I won't bother to read it. By now it should be clear that at least when it comes to distinguishing the members of the category of relations, medievals approach the issue in the same basic way that contemporary philosophers do. Indeed, like us, they have a clear understanding of polyadic predicates, and they rely on them for their understanding of relations. As we have seen, they deny that relations can be fully characterized in terms of polyadic predicates, insisting instead that they must also be partly characterized in functional terms, as beings or entities that actually serve to relate things. But, presumably, this is something that contemporary philosophers would agree with as well. If there is a difference, therefore, it must have to do with the precise way in which medievals understand the nature of the beings or entities that do the relating. To see what this is, however, we must return to that other component, of Aristotle's treatment of relations in the categories, namely his identification of relations with accidents. So section two, relations and polyadic properties. So far I've been focusing on the failure of just one of the standard explanations for the late development of relations, namely the inability of pre-20th century philosophers to properly understand relational predicates or propositions, Thus, if Aristotle's influence is to blame for the prevalence of reductionism or anti-realism, it can't be because it precludes a proper appreciation of polyadic predicates or their importance for identifying relations. But there are other reasons for thinking Aristotle's influence played a role in the late development of relations. His substance accident ontology, and in particular his identification of relations with accidents, might also seem to require a form of reductionism or anti-realism. As Leibniz famously says in a letter to the boss, and here I refer you back to C on the handout, that first item under nature of accidents, Leibniz famously says, you will not, I believe, admit an accident that's in two subjects at the same time. My judgment about relations is that fatherhood in David is one thing, sonship in Solomon another but the relation common to both is merely a mental thing, whose foundation is the modifications of the individuals. Here Leibniz is merely echoing things that Aristotle's medieval followers uh, habitually say about accidents. Indeed, he's echoing the standard Aristotelian dictum that accidents can't belong to more than one subject at a time. And I also included under that passage from Leibniz a few representative medieval affirmations of that dictum. But if relations are just accidents, and accidents can't belong to more than one subject at a time, then it would seem that relations can't be understood in terms of polyadic properties after all. In which case, the familiar story is right at least to insist that Aristotle's influence on later thinking about relations did encourage anti-realist or reductionist tendencies after all. But here I think we must be careful some have suggested that the Aristotelian framework prevented those who operated within it from forming the very concept of a polyadic property. And this explains why they were unable to understand relations in the way we do now. But this claim, I think, is obviously too strong, for Leibniz deploys just such a concept in that passage quoted when he says the relation common to both is merely a mental thing. And medievals habitually speak of relations in polyadic terms, explicitly comparing them to a road, that runs between two cities, a palisade running between two watchtowers, or a being that somehow stands midway between two extremes. So a via, intervolum, medium. Nor do they take themselves to be original in this regard. On the contrary, they take themselves merely to be following the suggestion of Aristotle's in the physics, which itself just appears to be part and parcel of the common sense conception of relations. Thus, as the late medieval philosopher Peter Ariel says at one point, And here I refer you to E on the handout. In the third book of his commentary on the physics, comment 20, the commentator, that's Averroes, says that a relation is a disposition existing between two things, interduos. But even apart from him, it's clear that fatherhood is conceived as if it were a kind of being standing midway between a father and a son. And the same is true of other relations, he says. In light of passages such as these, it's hard to take seriously the suggestion that Aristotelians, medieval or otherwise, lacked the concept of a polyadic property. If the medievals were prevented from understanding relations in terms of polyadic properties, therefore, it must have been because their understanding of Aristotelian accidents excluded the possibility of there being anything in extra-mental reality corresponding to or answering to that concept. <coughs> but even this claim turns out to be too strong, for as Heine Hansen who's here, I think, has recently shown, uh, there were at least some medievals who identify relational accidents with polyadic properties. Hansen focuses on the case of a 13th century master, Nicholas of Paris, who uses the very same example that Leibniz does to develop his views. Unlike Leibniz, however, Nicholas insists that fatherhood belongs to two substances at one time. And here I'm reading the first passage under the Nicholas of Paris bit at E. Insofar as fatherhood names a relation, it's not in the father, but in the father and the son. Here we seem to have a clear example of a medieval Aristotelian accepting the existence of polyadic properties. Indeed, it's precisely because Nicholas accepts the existence of such properties that he also denies Leibniz's view that the, term father, the terms fatherhood and sonship name distinct properties of the related terms. Uh, Nicholas insists instead that they are different names for the same relation. And here's the next passage. Fatherhood and sonship is one specific type of relation. But it's called by different names according to the different ways of comparing its relata. For in comparing the father to the son, we call it fatherhood. But in comparing the son to the father, we call it sonship. What's especially interesting and surprising about Nicholas's views, however, and this is something that Hansen himself emphasizes what's interesting and surprising is that despite his identification of relations with polyadic properties or accidents Nicholas nonetheless, nonetheless wants to uphold the traditional Aristotelian dictum that accidents don't belong to more than one subject at a time. Thus in the case of fatherhood and sonship he insists that the two substances in which this relation inheres count as a single subject. So he says fatherhood and sonship is in the father and the son as in one subject, and not in each of them taken separately. Uh, Then he has this analogy, just as the number four is in four men, as in one subject. It's hard to know exactly what Nicholas has in mind when he speaks of a single accident as being in multiple substances, as in one subject, but the analogy to number suggests to me at least that perhaps this means as in one subject of plural predication. In any case, what's important about Nicholas's views for our purposes is this. They show that contrary to what the familiar story would have us believe, the Aristotelian identification of relations with accidents, and even the traditional dictum requiring their existence in a single subject, is compatible with their being polyadic properties. Despite the interest and importance of Nicholas's views, most medievals appear to have rejected it, in favor of the more Leibnizian understanding of accidents. And it must be admitted that this understanding of accidents did sometimes lead philosophers to embrace a form of anti-realism about relations. Uh, Thus, in the passage from Oriel, I quoted a minute ago that first passage, immediately after he finishes describing relations at a sort of interval, uh, he proceeds to deny the existence of relations outside the mind or apprehension. And he justifies this conclusion as follows, and this is the second passage under Peter Ariel, it appears, he says, that a single thing which must be imagined as some sort of interval existing between two things can't exist in extramental reality, but only in the intellect. This appears to be the case not only because nature doesn't produce such intervals, but also because an intermediate or interval of this sort doesn't appear to be in either of the two things it relates as in a subject, but rather between them, where it's clear that there is nothing which can serve as its subject. What I think is interesting about this argument is that it takes for granted that relations must be conceived of as polyadic properties. Indeed, like Nicholas, Ariel appears to accept both of the following two claims, and these are the first two claims under F. First, relations are that in virtue of which things are related, that's that functional account, Uh, and that in virtue of which things are related are polyadic properties or accidents. Although both Ariel and Nicholas agree about the truth of one and two, they differ in the implications they draw from them. Indeed, we can describe the difference in terms of two following, uh, two further claims. Which of the two further claims they accept? Three or four? Three says there are no polyadic properties or accidents in extra mental reality. That's just the Leibnizian understanding of accidents. Uh, four says there are th- things are related independently of any activity. Of the mind. We might think of that as expressing a kind of common sense realism. Because Ariel accepts the, the third claim, he's driven to reject the fourth. By contrast, Nicholas accepts the common sense realism claim at four, and hence is driven to reject the standard Leibnizian understanding of accidents. Indeed, insofar as one through four represent an inconsistent set, and both Ariel and Nicholas accept the claims at one and two, they would seem to have no choice but to reject one of those two claims. So with Aurel, we do arrive at a genuine form of medieval anti-realism, one that's at least partly motivated by a broadly Aristotelian substance accident ontology. If the familiar story were true, we might expect this sort of anti-realism to be the dominant view among medieval philosophers, especially since I've already said that most medievals accept the standard Leibnizian understanding of accidents that underlies it. As it turns out, however, Ariel's views about relations represent no less of a minority position in the Middle Ages than Nicholas's do. And this is because the vast majority of medieval philosophers not only accept the Leibnizian understanding of accidents at three, but also the common sense realism at four. Indeed, as the medievals themselves often point out, denying this aspect of common sense appears to be tantamount to denying such obvious facts as the real structure of the universe, the mind independence of composition, causality, spatial proximity, and even the objectivity of mathematical knowledge. Uh, And here I have a quotation from William Ockham, who seems to speak for the majority, when he says, The intellect does nothing to bring it about that the universe is one, or that a whole is composed of its parts, or that causes in spatial proximity to their effects actually cause their effects, or that a triangle has three angles, and so on any more than the intellect brings it about that Socrates is white, or that fire is hot, or water cold. Uh, it's interesting to note that Oriel himself worries a great deal about this objection, ultimately suggesting a response that's reminiscent of certain views about secondary qualities. Just as some early moderns insist that, although colors don't exist outside the mind, things can still be said to have powers to produce certain color sensations, so too, Oriel wants to suggest, although relations don't exist outside the mind, things do have the powers to produce certain types of comparison or relational judgments. Medievals find further support for common sense realism in in reflection on the implications of Aristotelian category theory itself. Indeed, realism was often bolstered by appeal to Aristotle's own insistence that relations constitute a distinct category of being. As Aquinas says at one point, nothing is placed in a category unless it's something existing outside the soul. For these reasons, it turns out that most medieval philosophers reject an assumption shared by both Nicholas and Ariel, namely the assumption that relations just are polyadic properties, which is something which seems to be entailed by the conjunction of those first two claims. That is to say, although they grant that relations are that in virtue of which things are related, they deny that polyadic properties are the beings or entities that do the relating. And if we return to all four of those claims... I think we can um, express the standard medieval position as I've indicated at the first item under G. That is, in terms of the conjunction of one, relations are that in virtue of which things are related. Three, there are no polyadic properties or accidents in extra reality. And four, things are related independently of the activity of the mind. And I call this position moderate realism in order to emphasize that the medievals them- themselves think of it as steering a middle course between the radical realism of Nicholas, which requires the existence of polyadic properties, and the radical anti-realism of Ariel, which requires that nothing can be related independently of the mind. And for the sake of completeness, I also gave you a brief characterization of radical realism and anti-realism as a conjunction of three of those claims. Uh, So, like radical realism... The standard medieval position insists that relations exist mind independently, hence its realism. But like radical anti-realism, it denies the existence of any polyadic properties outside the mind, hence the moderateness of its realism. I suppose the standard medieval position might be described as a form of anti-realism about polyadic properties. Uh, Most of its proponents did allow that polyadic properties exist at least in the mind. Even so, because it sharply distinguishes relations from polyadic properties and insists that relations themselves exist independently of the mind, the position itself, I think, clearly qualifies as a form of realism about relations. By now I hope it's clear that most of the elements of the familiar story about relations are mistaken. In the case of medievals, it's simply not true that pre-20th century philosophers lacked a clear understanding of polyadic predicates or properties, or that such a lack in any way required them to accept some form of anti-realism or reductionism about relations. On the contrary, almost all medievals thought of relations as corresponding to polyadic predicates, most accepted some form of realism, and at least some explicitly identified relations with polyadic properties." Indeed, as we've just seen, those few medievals such as Ariel, who did accept a form of anti-realism, appear to have done so precisely because they accepted the identification of relations with polyadic properties. In spite of all this, it might still seem there's an element of truth to the familiar story, for insofar as the influence of Aristotle encouraged, even if it didn't require the standard Leibnizian understanding of accidents at three, it might still seem to have encouraged reductionist tendencies about relations. For if relations are not to be identified with polyadic properties or accidents, it's hard to see how they could be regarded as in any way irreducible. But even here, I want to suggest the medievals help us to see that things are more complicated than the, than the familiar story would have us believe. So section three, relations realism and anti-reductionism. It's important to see that there were two different types of moderate realism developed during the Middle Ages. According to the first, and more ontologically parsimonious of the two, relations are to be identified with ordinary, non-relational accidents. That is to say, with accidents falling under Aristotelian categories other than relation. Thus, if Simmius is taller than Socrates, this is to be explained by their respective heights, which fall under the category of quantity. Again, if Socrates is similar, in color to Plato, this is to be explained by Socrates and Plato's particular colors, which fall under the category. An important early medieval representative of this. According to the second parsimonious type of moderate realism, relations are to be identified not with ordinary non relational accidents, but rather with accidents of a sui generis type. Thus, if Simeus is taller than Socrates, this is to be explained by a pair of sui generis monadic accidents that are distinct from, but nonetheless necessitated by, Simeus's and Socrates's heights. Again, if Socrates is similar in color to Plato, this is to be explained not by their respective colors, but by a pair of sui generis monadic accidents necessitated by them, and so on for other relations. There's some slight oversimplifications here, but that's the basic picture. And John Ben Scotus is a a representative, late medieval representative of this second sort of position. In the medieval discussion of relations, it's the difference between these two... Uh, positions, these two specific types of moderate realism, that constitutes the greatest divide among philosophers. Both parties generally agree that whenever two or more things are related, there must be some non-relational properties or accidents that necessitate the holding of the relation. Um, These things come to be called by medievals the grounds or foundations of relations. What they disagree about is whether relations, that is the beings or entities that do the relating, are to be identified with such foundations. Proponents of the first type of moderate realism say yes, and thereby reduce relations to ordinary monadic properties, whereas proponents of the second type say no, insisting that relations instead constitute a distinct or irreducible type of monadic property. Now, um, we might expect anyone inclined both to realism and the rejection of polyadic properties to embrace the reductive type of moderate realism. For as already noted, it's clearly the simplest or most ontologically parsimonious of the two. What's more, failure to reduce relations to ordinary non-relational accidents threatens to make them mysterious. After all, if relations are monadic properties, but not ordinary non-relational accidents, how are they to be conceived? Interestingly, it's precisely at this point that Aristotle's influence becomes relevant. Uh, Like Aristotle... Uh, and this kind of reminds me of some of the things Peter Simon was saying about certain of his moods, like Aristotle, many medievals see a close connection between predication and ontology. Thus, the fact that relations are associated with a distinct type of predication is often taken as some evidence for their having a distinct type of nature or quiddity. Medieval philosopher Harkley puts it, and here I'm reading from the first of the three passages under H on the handout. In the categories, Aristotle says that the being associated with relatives is being toward something else. But it's not the case that the being of a foundation is being towards something else. Therefore, they're not the same. Indeed, this understanding of relations was often thought to be required by Aristotle's insistence that relations constitute one of the ten distinct categories of being. Of course, reductive realists can explain the uniqueness of relative terms and predications without introducing relations over and above their foundations. After all, the mere fact that relative terms are associated with concepts whose content is distinct from that of any non-relational or absolute concepts doesn't by itself entail anything about the world. Even so, an important question remains. If Socrates' is being similar in color to Plato is nothing ontologically over and above Socrates and Plato's colors, why do we represent it as if it were? At this point, it would seem that the reductive realists have no choice but to appeal to our psychological makeup. We simply do, or at least can, represent one and the same situation in two very different ways. Uh, as Occam says in one of his so-called, quote, libital questions, and this is the next passage, Socrates is similar to Plato by the very fact that Socrates is white and Plato is white. Yet despite this, the intellect can express these many absolute things by means of concepts in diverse ways. In one way by means of an absolute concept, as when one says Socrates is white or Plato is white. In a second way way, by means of a relative concept, as when one says Socrates is similar to Plato with respect to whiteness. Even if one does not find this sort of appeal to psychology implausible, the non-reductivists would seem to have a more satisfying reply, for they can say that the reason we represent relational situations as distinct from non-relational situations is because they are distinct. (coughs) Indeed, non-reductive realists can add that the logical incompleteness of predicates such as similar call our attention to precisely what makes these situations distinct namely the sui generis accidents that are possessed by Socrates and Plato in addition to their respective colors. Now, as most medieval non-reductive realists recognize, um, there's a difficulty posed by their position, namely that of giving a perspicuous account of the nature of relations or relational accidents. But they themselves often attribute this difficulty to the fact that the nature in question is sui generis. Uh, as Albert the Great says, uh, when he turns to the discussion of relations in his commentary on Aristotle's Metaphysics, and this is the final passage under H, it's difficult for us to speak about the category of relative or relation because it has a nature in being altogether different from the genera of being which we have consider- which have been considered so far, namely substance, quantity, and quality, the so-called absolute categories. Mm-hmm. Given that non-reductivists construe the nature of relations as sui generis, it's not surprising that they feel the need to resort to metaphors to describe it. Albert himself most often appeals to a visual metaphor of outward-lookingness, and he describes individual relations as that in virtue of which a subject looks out toward another. Other philosophers rely on other metaphors and variously describe the nature of relations as a kind of directionality or towardness, as a type of disposition or a way of holding oneself, or again as the source or principle of structure and order. Of all these metaphors, the ones involving directionality or intentionality are perhaps uh, likely to be the most helpful to us. For attempts to characterize intentionality in non relational or adverbial terms are not unfamiliar even if they're no longer all that popular. According to such adverbialism, intentionality is to be understood as a type of property whose intrinsic nature is such that, exemplified by a subject in appropriate circumstances, which include the presence of an appropriate object, it relates the subject to the object in question. In particular, it relates the subject to it as thinker to object thought. This analogy is useful because medieval non-reductive realists typically regard intentionality as a special case or type of relation. According to them, all relations are to be understood adverbially. That is, as properties whose intrinsic nature is such that their exemplification in the appropriate circumstances will relate their subjects to something else, it's just that in certain cases these properties relate their subjects specifically as thinker to objects taught. There's more that could be said about medieval anti-reductionism, and indeed much more would need to be said if we were going to have anything like a full appreciation of it. But I hope that what I've already said is sufficient to show that it would be a mistake to suppose that Aristotle's influence straightforwardly encouraged any specific form of reductionism Hmm. about relations. Okay, now for the final section, the familiar story revisited. I have been arguing that the familiar story about relations greatly exaggerates the difference between the Aristotelian and contemporary perspectives on the nature and existence of relations. We're now in a position to begin to see why the familiar story runs together a number of different types of claims that can be made about relations, including each of those under I on the handout. So here's one uh, semantic claim. Relations correspond to polyadic predicates. A sort of functional claim. Relations are that in virtue of which things are related. Relations hold mind independently. Relations are a fundamental or irreducible type of being. And finally, relations are polyadic properties. The familiar story seems to take for granted that E, only an ontology that includes polyadic properties, can uphold either C, the mind independence, or D, the irreducibility of relations. And presumably this is because it also takes for granted that polyadic properties are the only type of being or entity that can, A, correspond to polyadic predicates, and hence B, play the functional role of relating things. In short, the familiar story seems to assume that the claims at A through E form a type package. But as our discussion of Aristotle's medieval followers uh, makes clear, this assumption is false. These claims can be pulled apart in various ways, and in any case, they must all be kept distinct if we're to have any hope of understanding the actual way in which the history of relations developed. For at least from the perspective of medievals, philosophers since Plato have accepted some form of A, and philosophers since Aristotle have seen the importance of B. What's more, most but not all medievals accept C. Many of them accept D, and some even accept E. Indeed, even those few, few medievals who reject C in favor of some form of anti-realism do so precisely because they accept the identification of relations with polyadic properties at E. As it turns out, a clear understanding of the relative independence of the claims at A through E enables us to introduce one further type of media we have not yet fully distinguished, namely, the position of William Ockham. From what we've seen of Ockham's views so far, it might appear that he accepts some form of moderate realism. Indeed, one according to which relations are identical to ordinary non-relational accents. Um, Because as he says in something I quoted earlier, and I've actually repeated the relevant bit under I, under that complication section, uh, remember he says, Socrates is similar to Plato by the very fact that Socrates is white and Plato is white. Uh, so that suggests he holds a kind of reductive moderate realism. But it turns out that's not quite right. Occam does allow that things are related independently of the activity of the mind. He does think they're related by ordinary non-relational accidents. But he denies that this requires the mind independence of relations. On the contrary, like Ariel, he accepts the identification of relations with polyadic properties at E and takes this to imply the rejection of C. In order to reconcile these various commitments, Occam's strategy is to reject something that was taken for granted by almost all medieval philosophers before him, and indeed something that seems like a truism, namely the functional understanding of relations at B. According to Ockham, relations are not that in virtue of which things are related. On the contrary, things are related by their extramental foundations, that is, by their ordinary non-relational accents. By contrast, relations are beings existing only in the mind, We might put Occam's views like this. Even though a statement like similarity exists can't be true independently of the mind, a statement like Socrates is similar to Plato can be. And actually this way of putting things, this formulation helps to explain why Occam often expresses his view uh, using what seem like otherwise unintelligible formulae as this white thing really is similar to that one, even though similarity is not really in this one. It also enables us to understand how his position puts a new spin on the standard debate about whether relations are identical to their foundations. Occam thinks the answer to this question is no. Nothing in the mind could be identical to extra, anything in extra reality. But unlike others who give this answer, Occam doesn't thereby commit himself to the view that relations constitute a distinct or type of being. And hence he can consistently reject the claim at D about their fundamentality. Insofar as Occam's position upholds the common-sense view that things can be related, mind independently, we might think of it as a type of moderate anti-realism, at least in comparison with the more radical realism of Ariel. In the end, therefore, we can distinguish, I think, four main types of medieval positions on relations depending on where they stand with respect to the claims at A through E. There are two types of realism, radical and moderate, and two types of anti-realism, and I've set those... Uh, at that table item on the handout. It's probably obvious, but I use the plus sign to indicate acceptance of one of those claims, a minus sign to indicate rejection of one, Uh, and in the special case of moderate realism, I've used a combination of both signs to indicate its compatibility with the acceptance or rejection of D, since that's what gives rise to the reductive and anti-reductive or non-reductive forms of it. To tell a complete story about relations prior to the 20th century, one would have to say something about the main lines of influence on the acceptance or rejection of the claims constitutive of these four positions. And we've already seen some of them. Perhaps with the exception of claim C, which seems to be a part of common sense, Aristotle's discussion of relatives is at least partly responsible for introducing all the other claims into the discussion. Indeed, his preferred definition of relatives and its intuitiveness... On the standard medieval interpretation, ensured that almost everyone accepted A and B. And this, together with common sense claim at C, created some pressure to accept at least D, if not also E. And indeed, D seems to have struck some as so plausible in itself, perhaps maybe even because of the connection between relations and polyadic predicates, that they were prepared to go to fairly radical extremes to uphold it, including either uh, giving up the standard Leibnizian conception of accidents, according to which there are no polyadic. According to which there are no polyethic properties in extramental reality. Uh, Embracing a radical form of anti-realism, according to which things are not related independently of the mind. Or even to deny an apparent truism about the functional nature of relations, according to which relations are things that relate. Still, none of this really addresses what is perhaps the chief question that remains. What is it that led most medievals to accept the standard Leibnizian understanding of accidents, and hence to reject the existence of polyetic properties outside the mind? Suppose the familiar story is wrong to trace it to some sort of confusion, or even to suggest that it's somehow entailed by the traditional conception of Aristotelian accidents. Still, how is it to be explained, and why would its acceptance be so widespread, shared by almost all medievals except the few who embraced radical realism? This is a big question and one I can't attempt fully to answer here, but the short answer, I think, has to do with some more general ontological considerations. And perhaps the most important one here is that medievals by and large are committed to some form of trope nominalism. This, I think, is actually suggested by Leibniz's own statement about accidents. Um, If there were universal accidents, even a monadic property could belong to more than one subject at a time. But just as most trope theorists nowadays are loath to admit anything other than monadic tropes, even though it's not strictly required, so too, I think, in the case of medievals. There are, of course, other questions that would have to be answered before anything like a complete history of relations could be given. For example, if I'm right to think that medievals, perhaps Aristotelians in general, had a clear understanding of relational predication, one might wonder why it took so long for this understanding to be incorporated into a formal logic of relations. Again, medievals aren't the only pre-20th century philosophers, or for that matter, the only such philosophers to have been influenced by Aristotle. How do the discussions of relations in these other pre-20th century philosophers compare with the medievals? Although these sorts of questions fall outside the scope of my investigation here, on the basis of what we've already seen, we might expect that whatever their answers are, they're likely to be more subtle or sophisticated than the familiar, familiar story would have us believe. Thank you.